Welcome to The Pen and the Yad. This week's Torah portion is Bamidbar. Rabbi Michael Siegel sits down with author Jonathan Eig and talks about counting and being counted, the power of a census. Well, this week we get to start a whole new book in the Torah, the book of Bamidbar, as we say in Hebrew, in the wilderness. But in English we say it's the book of numbers, the book of a census, the book of counting. And as the children of Israel are waiting to enter the promised land, they know that they're going to have to fight to enter, and they have to be prepared for warfare. And so they begin with a census, a remarkably detailed census of every tribe, of every man who can fight. And we should note that this census is only for men, men counted. And so it really opens up the idea of the power of a census and who counts in a society. Yeah, we love to take a tally of ourselves and something America has done for centuries. You know, every 10 years we take a, we go out door to door and we count who's out there. Except we, as you pointed out, we don't always count the women or in some cases we'll count people just as a body, but we won't bother recording their names. That was certainly the case for slaves. And, um, I, you know, I wonder why it's so important. Does it make us feel more powerful if we know who's out there? Obviously, for taxation purposes, it's, it's important because you want to make sure that if somebody's out there, um, you're taking their, their money to support the cause, support the government, to see, decide who can vote. So in some ways, you could argue that we're, we're making some really important decisions when we take the census about who matters and who doesn't. So there, there's a practical aspect. If I'm a general and I need to know how many people I can put in the field, right? There, that's a practical aspect. If I am looking at, if I'm a city planner and I'm trying to figure out what the city is going to look like and what, what potential I really have, if my numbers are going down as opposed to going up over a 10-year period, then I have to plan differently, and on it goes. Also, it's of interest to me to know if this is an aging population or not an aging population. How will I plan for school? Things of that nature. But as a Jew, there's a double-edged sword here because there was also the fearful aspect of what it meant to be counted, what it meant to be numbered. There is a whole question within Jewish law as to whether you actually count someone, if you go through the physical act of counting, that it, that it brings bad luck. And for Jews, it really did bring bad luck. I mean, think of the people that we grew up with, with numbers on their arms. Right. You know, that's a whole other way of being numbered as other. Here, these people are being counted. And what we shouldn't lose sight of, and this takes us back to your example of slaves in this country, is that this was a slave people. And for the first time, they're being counted as people who can defend themselves. They're being counted as individuals in a larger society, not as a mass of slaves who are going to build a project. So they're proud to stand up and be counted, and they're probably really concerned with seeing if their numbers are growing because they are unstable. This is a community that could easily be crushed. So they want to see if they're growing year by year. Absolutely. And we have to look at this in context because we have to see also how far we've come. The reality is, is that women didn't count. Children didn't count. 
The elderly, the only people who counted were those people who were going to go and fight. It is a powerful thing to consider that in a way the Jewish people has been taking its own internal census and making people count that didn't count in the past. The evolution of women, of how we look at our children, how we are more inclusive of people with special challenges. How do we include them in the larger community? Those are really interesting questions. And yet, we live in a society where people continue not to count. Lots of people, um, and some people still can't vote in this country, have difficulty voting, or convicted felons in many states are not allowed to vote. And it's really interesting, as somebody who's written books about American history, I can see how the census shows the evolution of who counts and who doesn't. And for a long time, slaves were recorded in the census only by their ages and their sexes their, and their gender because they were property. So you needed to know how many slaves someone owned so you can tax them accordingly. So on the census sheet, there was no name. No names. It would just, just it would have the owner of the slave and then a list of his slaves and their age and their gender. So I cannot trace back Martin Luther King's ancestors. I'm writing a book about King now, as, as you know. There's a certain point at which the census uh, recorders begin to record the names of his ancestors. For a while, they're just numbers. And then you start to see names appear. But it's still difficult to track King's family because the names are the names of the slave owners. So these are like cattle brands. Martin Luther King was, first of all, he was born Michael King, no middle name. Before that, his father, Mike King Sr., was uh, the son of a guy named James King. But his name, James King, might have been Branham at one point and might have been spelled two different ways because it's recorded so often, so differently. And what you see is that it appears that he changed his name from Branham to King because some of his other family members were kings and they'd been sold, they'd been separated, the family had been broken up and the kings wanted to get back after they'd been sold to the Branhams, they wanted to feel like they were back with their other relatives who'd been separated from them so they changed the name back and it's very difficult to trace exactly what happened but you can see the suffering in, written in between those little lines. Here you have somebody who's not even counted as a human being. He's a piece of property. Three generations later, he will be one of the most important men to ever walk the earth, one of the greatest Americans ever born. But just go back in the census, three generations, and he's not even registered as a human being. He's a piece of property. So we go from the Dred Scott decision, where people of color are not even seen as a whole human being, and within a span of oh, less than 100 years, or maybe around 100 years, you have someone like, Martin Luther King, whose name is iconic That's in right. our society. And it really reflects this idea that counting people brings with it a whole level of empowerment that the larger society was working to not give. So the emancipation leads to the ability of these enslaved group to be numbered, to be counted in a larger society, to be given their names. That's right, and that's one reason that he loved being introduced as Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's a mouthful, right? right? But he knew that there were people watching him on TV who did not ever hear themselves referred to as Mr. There were black people who were treated in the South who were still called boy, who were still called, you know, kids would call grown black men Mr. Jimmy, right? Not Mr. Smith. Um, there was no respect, and he knew that people would see that he was forcing the white media to call him by this 
proud name, and he knew how much that would resonate because these people, for a long time, didn't even get their names recorded. Right, and what my mind goes to as you're talking is the amount of time and effort that Dr. King put into voters' rights because the way that a society allows you to count, quite literally, is through voting. And so it is of interest that voters' rights remains a very serious issue in our society today. I mean, you can only imagine how Dr. King would be... He'd be furious. You know, he was denied the right to vote in 1960, the presidential election. The voting board in Alabama decided that he did not have residency. So there's, it's always been a tool of power. The people in charge, the people in, in control, don't want to give up control. The dominant society does not want to give up power to the less dominant society. And that sadly remains true today. And, it, it, you know, gerrymandering, excluding convicted felons from voting, all of these things are, are done by the group in power who are trying to make sure they, they maintain power. And yet, in Dr. King's time, he was counseled to be patient. And I wonder if people of color are being similarly counseled today. Look how far you've come. Be patient. Okay, you didn't count at all then. Look how much you count now. And again, here the Torah is making this true line between enslaved people and what it means to be free, what it means to be counted, and the responsibility that the person now being counted takes upon themselves, but also the responsibility that the larger society takes upon itself to give that person their rights. Yeah, I don't think the uh, be patient... Uh, look how good things are. It really goes over very well. And King himself used to say, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And that doesn't provide a lot of consolation when you're uh, still in that arc and you don't feel like you're getting justice. Either I count or I don't. That's right. If I count enough to pick up my... And again, this speaks so clearly to our own society. If you can draft, if you can put an, a person of color in the army if they can fly the flag and if they can defend this country, how is it possible that we're not counting them in other areas? Right, right, right. And by the way, if you have a broken educational system, that's another way of not counting someone and making sure that, they're, that you're doing everything you can to ensure that they're not going to count. If you don't give people economic opportunities, and now you have, we've been hearing about in the last few months, a college scandal, which, which caters to the rich, all of this sends a very direct message. You count on paper, but you don't count on in society. That's right. The people with the money count more than the people without the money. The people who are in control feel like they count for more, and they, they, they work to keep that control. Well, here we go. This is a, an issue that is being debated today, will be debated tomorrow. And one of the ways that this conversation is moving is in white privilege. White privilege is another way of saying your number counts more than my number because of the whiteness of your skin. And you can argue against that idea as much as you want, but when you see the kinds of inequities in society, you for sure can understand how much that applies. The question is, what are the limits of that thinking, and how does that kind of thinking limit your ability to go forward? It's terrible. It's, it's challenging. It's, you know, we've created a society where a completely artificial standard of skin color has become almost 
you know, unavoidable, insurmountable, and it's this country's curse in many ways. You know, we started out in the previous portion by talking about curses and blessings. What a curse it is that we view the world this way and that it has so saturated our society. And so let's close with de Tocqueville, who came to this country at the beginning of the 19th century and looked at this country with wonder and the potential, but understood that the Achilles heel of this country was going to remain race and who counted and who didn't. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you.